All right, uh, we've been talking on the Olivet Discourse for the last several weeks, and I've really enjoyed being here. Uh, I think I got like four or five Sunday nights in a row here, so that's pretty good. I'm usually not in town that much. Um, anyway, uh, we're looking forward again. We'll be here all day uh, next Sunday, so I'm happy for that. Then uh, we'll be taking off. Valerie and I will be leaving for Israel. We have a, uh, for those that are visiting specifically, most of the rest of you know we'll be in Israel. We have 100 people coming with us uh, with, with the Friends of Israel. So I got a bus of 50, and Jim's got a bus, a bus of 50, and we're looking forward. Uh, Pray that they don't shut down Israel. Uh, They shut down Bethlehem today due to the coronavirus, so we won't be able to go there probably unless they they lift the uh, uh, quarantine on it. So we'll see what happens, right? You just never know when you're going overseas or based on what's happening in America. You don't know what's going to happen here tomorrow. So we'll see what happens. But pray for us, please. uh, We're looking forward to it. Uh, But you know what I'm looking forward to? I'm looking forward to next Sunday. Next Sunday, we've talked about the last two weeks on how to have a thriving church on Sunday morning. So we talked about evangelism two weeks ago. We specifically, if you were here uh, this morning, talked about edification. How do you feel loved in a church? Folks, that's key. We, and I just want to, I got a few minutes, so I just want to review this real quick for a couple that weren't able to be here this morning. In order to have a thriving church, you've got to have evangelism. You've got to be out on the streets, talking to friends, talking to relatives, talking to neighbors, in your workplace, sharing the gospel. That's the only way you're going to build a church is through sharing the gospel. So how important that is. Second thing which we talked about this morning was how in the world do you make people feel loved in the church? As I talked about this, the more I travel with and, and get into other churches and talk with pastors, believe it or not, most, and I shouldn't say most, a good percentage of pastors across the country, good Bible-believing uh, individuals, they cry on my shoulder. And I don't mean figuratively, I mean literally. I mean their wives are distraught, pastors are distraught, they feel unloved, they feel unwanted. And you know why, folks? If somebody wanted to ruin a church, what's the best way to do it? Attack the leadership in the church, right? What do you think Satan would like to do more than anything else? Attack the leadership in any church, right? I mean, the deacons, the pastors, those that have positions. Why does that happen? Why is it that the most criticized thing about churches across America are, I don't feel loved, I feel like I'm alone in the church? That is the most significant issue with most people that are leaving churches and looking for another church. They just don't feel part of it. So this morning, and if you didn't hear the message, I encourage you to uh, go on the internet. If it's not on there now, it is on there. Okay, go to go to the internet. Tony's already got it set up. And by the way, I appreciate Tony and Bethany and, and the work they do. They, they get all this technical stuff going, so thanks so much for what you do. And uh, Alex and uh, Cassidy... And let's see, was Bonnie on the piano today? Thanks, Bonnie, for what you did. Uh, Appreciate the music. It's great. So, how do you feel love? Go listen to that message. Find out the things that will help you to integrate yourselves within the church. And folks just love folks in the church. Don't ever walk out of here, please, without walking up to somebody saying, hey, I'm so glad you're here. Good to see you. And uh, make folks feel up. Boy, how important that is. Amen? Good stuff. All right, next week, and then I'll get into the message. Next week, we're going to talk about 
and it's the only E I could come up with, is education. So we've talked about love for people, love for God's people, which was this morning. We'll talk about love for God's Word and education and so forth next Sunday. Now, if I get invited back someday, uh, there's a fourth piece to the puzzle, which is uh, is, uh, exaltation. So we're going to talk about worshiping the Lord, drawing close to Him. Folks, if you're not close to God, if you're not walking with the Lord Jesus, and by the way, Steve, I won't point you out. Because every time I see Steve in the hallway, he always says, we're a church that loves Jesus, and Jesus has been doing this in my life, and here's what Jesus is. He uses the name. I like that. I really do. Because what's it showing? It's showing that he has a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, and he makes it known. Folks, that's, I like that. And uh, it's like that's convicting to me. It's like, I need to use that name a little more. Uh, I usually say Lord, and it's like, what's wrong with saying the Lord Jesus? That's a good idea. All right. So I've been convicted by Steve, good preacher. So take your Bibles. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. We've been studying the Olivet Discourse, which is Jesus' powerful prophetic preaching. Also a concept that if we put a title to the entire series would be Tribulation to Triumph. So what we've been going through, and we're all the way now, we're getting towards the end of chapter 24, and we'll finish chapter 24 tonight. And uh, again, uh, we'll see how things go in the future. If I'm invited back, we'll hit Matthew 25 and start to go through that. In fact, we'll go through the first 13 verses of Matthew 25 next week. So Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is giving one of the best prophetic sermons in the entire Bible. I always say it's interesting because most of us, when we go and read the Gospels, we're not looking for specific doctrinal things that are within the Bible, yet the best doctrinal message on prophecy is Matthew chapter 24 and 25, tied in, of course, with the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel, book of Zechariah, and some other places. So, but Jesus here, if you, and just to refresh us very quickly, and uh, we'll try and be done by seven as normal, but I always like to give a little bit of introduction. So those of you that have been here the entire series, sorry for the repeat, uh, but for folks that are here for the first time or maybe have missed a Sunday or two, just to kind of refresh what we've been going through. So if you'll recall, Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, it says that Jesus then departed from the temple. All right, so what you're looking at, and you'll see the purple ring around where the first and the second Jewish temple stood. That right now is the Dome of the Rock, the Islamic shrine to Muhammad. So the second temple was torn down in AD 70, but Jesus is walking out of that temple and approximately, and again, based on how you date the crucifixion of Christ, uh, if you go again towards what we came from Sir Robert Anderson, you come up with 33 AD. If you disagree with that, I'm not going to quibble over the date today. The issue is in approximately 30 to 33 AD, Jesus is walking out of where that purple circle is, where the second temple stood. He walks out and he departs from the temple and his disciples stop him, chapter 24, verse 1, and said, Jesus, look at the buildings. They were seeing these beautiful, massive, beautiful temple that they just walked out of. These were farmers, fishermen, individuals that are just awestruck by the beautiful building. They walk out and they walk across the Kidron Valley. So if you go to the right of where you see the temple and the walls, go down the valley. You can see some of the green valley that's a little bit uh, south of the temple wall. And you start to go up. 
and I want to be careful I don't fall down here, but you walk down here and then you begin to ascend the Mount of Olives. I've been there many times. I'll be there in a couple of weeks again. The Mount of Olives, of course, it's hard to see from this angle, but it ascends quite a bit higher than the Temple Mount. The disciples come out, Matthew 24, verse 1. They start to cross the Kidron Valley and ascend up the Mount of Olives. The disciples come up to Jesus while they're on the Mount of Olives, and they say, Jesus, when is this going to take place? Look at Matthew 24, verse 3 to set the context for uh, what we'll get into tonight. And I need to turn to it. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3. Come on, here we go. All right. Now, as he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, and they asked him two questions, and one is two-part question. Tell us, Jesus, when will these things be? When is that second temple going to be torn down? Then they asked him another two-part question. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And if you have a a King James Version, it'll say the end of the world. The word there is I own, which is better translated age in current vernacular. Saying the end of the world implies that the world's going to end. That's not what they're implying. Jesus is there and they're saying, when are you coming? Did you catch that? It's like saying, uh, uh, Hey guys, when are you going to be here? And you're looking at it and it's like, what do you mean when's he, when are you going to be here? I'm here. No, what they're asking him is, Jesus, when are you coming back to set up your kingdom? If you recall the first advent of Jesus Christ, he came, did he come to set up his kingdom? Did he come to set up his millennial kingdom? The answer is no, he did not. The Jewish people were looking for Jesus to come to set up his kingdom. And what did he come to do on his first advent, his first coming? He came to die, not to set up his kingdom. His kingdom is not set up yet. That's to come. So they're saying, Jesus, when are you going to come and set up your kingdom? And what is going to be the signs, if you will, of the end of this age? Now, if you go back to the the first couple of messages I preached on this, we find out that there is a specific age in which we live. There are two companion passages to Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus' Olivet Discourse. And for 10 points, although we won't ask you to say it out loud, if you can come up with the two, write them on a paper and send it to me, and I'll give you 10 points. Say, what's 10 points get me? Nothing, but it's fun. All right. So there are two other companion passages. Mark chapter 13 And Luke chapter 21 are also on where Jesus is preaching the Olivet Discourse. In Luke chapter 21, verse 24, he talks about the times of the Gentiles. What are the times of the Gentiles? This is very important as we continue our study. The time of the Gentiles began when the Jewish people were kicked out of Israel. When did that happen? Got to go way back in history to when the first temple was torn down and the Jewish people were taken captive to this one I want to hear from you. Where'd they get taken captive to? Babylon. Very good. That's excellent. I like that. All right. So in 586 BC, the first temple was torn down by the Babylonians and the Jewish people were taken captive to Babylon. All right. 
After 70 years of captivity, and we're not going to go into all why that happened, but it was basically because the Jews refused to do the uh, Sabbath that they were supposed to follow, so God put them into captivity for 70 years, Second Chronicles chapter 36. So they're in, Jeru- or in Babylon for 70 years, and God then sends the Jewish people back to, you all know this one, I'm pointing at it, where does he send them back to? Israel, there we go. All right, so they go back to Israel. They, they build the second temple. Wait a second. Since 586 B.C., when the first temple was torn down, have the Jewish people ever had complete rights over the land that God promised to give them in Genesis 15? No, thank you. You say, well, wait a minute. 1948, the Jewish people became a state again. Do the Jewish people have the complete landmass that God promised them in Genesis 15 when he gave the Abrahamic covenant? Do they have the entire landmass? No. Very good. Man, this is good. I'm liking it. They do not. When I go to Israel in a couple of weeks, I'll go down towards the Gaza Strip. If I go past the border, I'll be arrested and probably killed by Hamas. That's Jewish property, but Hamas owns it right now. The Gaza Strip is run by the Palestinians. If I cross over into the West Bank with an Israeli license plate, the West Bank, which is uh, uh, basically the East Bank, which they don't say the East Bank, but it's really the East Bank for Israel, that's God's given territory to Israel. Do they own it today? No. The time of the Gentiles began when the Babylonians kicked the Jewish people out of their land and it will not be restored to the Jewish people until Jesus Christ returns and sets up his millennial kingdom. All right, so let's go through some of this. So we've got a basic idea of where Jesus was coming out of. So again, uh, for those that are new to this, if you've never been to Israel, I'm standing on the Mount of Olives, looking down over the gravestones into the Kidron Valley, and then where that gold dome is was where the first and the second temple stood, and where the third temple will one day be built. You say, what do you mean the third temple? Daniel 9, verse 27. Remember that? One of our key verses. In Daniel 9, verse 27, it tells us that after the rapture of the church, what's going to happen? Antichrist will come on the scene. He'll make a covenant with Israel for seven years. In the midst of the covenant, he will stop the sacrifices and the oblation. Wait a second. Where do the Jewish people practice the sacrifices? On the Temple Mount. I showed you a couple of weeks ago massive amount of pictures that I've taken off the internet that I personally have seen when I've been in Israel. Everything needed for the second temple is, or I'm sorry, the third temple is ready to go up. The altar is made. All the implements are made. It's ready to happen. Folks, I find that extremely exciting. You say, are you sure Daniel 9.27 refers to the third temple? Well, I can go to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15. If you look at that real quick, it talks about the abomination of desolation. We already just went through that about two weeks ago in Matthew 24. Jesus said there will be a third temple. It will be defiled. We brought up from Revelation, again, this is all review, from Revelation chapter 12, that Satan will literally be cast out of heaven in the mid part of the tribulation. He will infiltrate the satanic trinity, which is, review again, Satan, the Antichrist, and... 
for 10 points. What's number three? The false prophet. Very good. Antichrist mimics Jesus Christ. Satan mimics God the Father. The false prophet mimics the Holy Spirit. Revelation chapter 13, we went through it in detail. Revelation chapter 13 makes it very clear that after the rapture of the church, there'll be a seven-year tribulation period. In the middle of that tribulation period will be the most horrific time on this earth known as the Great Tribulation. So what are we going to look at tonight? Tonight we're going to examine four biblical instructional illustrations out of the scriptures, Matthew 24, that is going to basically point tribulation survivors for the return of Jesus Christ to earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we have now. I pray as we open up the only book that you've ever given to us, this precious word of God, that you'd speak to us tonight. I pray, Lord, that you'd excite us, that you'd motivate us, that you'd encourage us as we look to the scriptures and see what will happen in the future. It's amazing that you've given us these passages. So, Father, I pray that you would meet with us tonight, and, Father, that you'd instruct us, and we ask that you'd revive the saved, saved any lost here tonight, and all God's people said. Amen. We'll go to the Bible in just a minute, but let's look at our prophetic timeline very quickly again to set things in context as we get into the passage. So if we look to the left of the screen, we see the cross. You would not be here tonight if you didn't believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Correct? That's right. And we use that as our focal point. So after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, we started what is known as the church age. The church age is made up of those who have trusted in the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ and have received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. We are known as Christians. The event that will stop the current church age in which we live is the rapture of the church. And I like to go through it, and I'm going to do it one more time. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ, Christians, will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain, should it happen in our generation, shall be caught up together with them in the air. In the air. In the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. You say, well, what happens if I die before the rapture? Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Very good. So when someone dies who's a Christian, the body stays here, the soul, the spirit, so to speak, go up to be with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's good news. I'm happy about that. But the body goes into the ground. When does it come out of the ground? At the rapture of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 54 tell us that, uh, Behold, Paul says, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or all die, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. Same thing as 1 Thessalonians 4. Jesus meets Christians on the earth or in the air? In the air. That's operative. Because what we're talking about in Matthew chapter 24 is not the rapture of the church. Unfortunately, there's many individuals, I'll just be kind and not name them, because there's a lot of them, probably more than I got time to name, that hold that Matthew chapter 24 is speaking about the rapture of the church. This has nothing to do with the rapture of the church, as we're going to find tonight. 
and that as we've looked at over uh, the past several weeks. Jesus, is he addressing the church age saints in Matthew chapter 24? Hang on before you answer. When did the church age begin? Take a look at the chart. Had Jesus been crucified yet? Nope. Has his ascension happened yet? Nope. He's talking to Jewish disciples, informing them about what will happen in prophecy. That's why Matthew 24 and 25 is prophetic. All right, so let's move on. So the rapture of the church happens. Then we, uh, what we've discussed over the past, Antichrist will come on the scene, confirm a covenant with Israel, a seven-year peace treaty, Daniel 9, verse 27. That will inaugurate the seven-year tribulation period. The first half of that seven-year tribulation period is characterized by peace for the Jewish people. The second half will be the worst, unbelievable horrible, catastrophic tribulation on earth, known as the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is happens, again, going back to a little review here, Revelation 13, when the Satanic Trinity comes on the scene, when Antichrist makes this statement through the false prophet. The false prophet says, if you recall, if you do not worship the image that will be set up in that third temple, what is going to happen to them? They will be they will be killed is correct. Revelation chapter 13. So, what are we doing now in Matthew chapter 24? Again, the disciples came to Jesus Matthew chapter 24 verse 3 and we're finally going to get into the message now. And they said, "Jesus, tell us, what are going to be the signs of your coming?" In other words, his coming to set up his kingdom. Not the rapture. They didn't have a clue about the rapture at that point. So, Jesus takes his time. He does not tell them when the temple is going to be destroyed, by the way. He doesn't touch that subject in Matthew 24 or 25. But he begins to tell them about the signs that are going to take before his coming, right before he's going to inaugurate his millennial kingdom. You say, what in the world is the millennial kingdom? Well, most of you could answer the question. The millennial kingdom is talked about Let's go back very quickly. Revelation chapter 19, Jesus is coming back. Revelation 19 verse 11 says Jesus mounts up on a white horse. The saints mount up on white horses. We all come back with him. You say, we all come back with him. Where are we going to be? Well, if you've been raptured seven years before, uh, before this event, you're up with Jesus. So we're going to be up there. Revelation 19 says all of us will come back on white horses with him. Revelation 19, 11 to 21 then says that when Jesus descends, he goes basically to fight the Battle of Armageddon, wipes out all the enemies that have been assembled in the Battle of Armageddon, which is north of Jerusalem. He wipes them out. And in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 7, he sets up his 1,000-year millennial kingdom. You say, where do you get that from? Revelation chapter 20, first six verses, or seven verses, six times in seven verses, Jesus refers to the 1,000 years. Now, as I've said, if mom says something once, you better pay attention. If she says it twice, you really better pay attention. If she says it six times, you, uh, it's dead serious. Why did God stress this six times in seven verses? He wanted us to get the point. It's a 1,000-year literal millennial kingdom that he will set up. All right, so... Let's go very quickly, Matthew chapter 24, let's look at verse 29. 
Immediately after the tribulation of those days. How long is the tribulation period, folks? Seven literal years. Immediately after the tribulation, we touched on this last week, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So there's going to be this catastrophic, cataclysmic uh, uh, event that takes place. The sky is going, going to go crazy. Then we go to verse 30. Then, after these cataclysmic signs are taking place, if you will, in the heavenlies, then the sign of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will appear in heaven. Now catch this. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is not the rapture of the church. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. He is coming to the earth at this point. So the rapture has happened, the seven-year tribulation has happened, and now all these things during the seven-year tribulation, which are basically talked about in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, verse 10, all these things have happened. It's the end of the seven-year tribulation. And here's what's taking place. When Jesus is coming back in the air, it tells us that everybody is going to see him. If we go to Zechariah, a companion passage, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And Zechariah says about 500 B.C., And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they, those that are alive at that time, will look on me, Jesus Christ, whom they pierce. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Folks, when they see Jesus Christ coming in the air, specifically the Jewish people, remember, until the church age starts, God is basically centered on the Jewish people, and he will be again after the rapture. If you recall, and I spoke on this some time back, but it was a little refresher, how many, rhetorical question, how many Jewish people will die during that seven-year tribulation period? The answer is it will be the worst holocaust to have ever taken place on this earth. Second World War, six million Jewish people were murdered, butchered, killed. There's coming a worse holocaust than existed. Folks, this isn't sensational preaching. It's not allegorical preaching. This is literal. You say, well, where do you get that from? Zechariah chapter 13, mark it down, verses 8 and 9. In Zechariah 13, it says that two-thirds of the Jewish people will all be killed during that tribulation period, which means one-third will be saved. Here's how it's going to go down. God makes it very clear in Daniel chapter 12, first two verses, that he's going to take the Jewish people, a remnant of them, and protect them. Revelation chapter 12, I think I said Daniel. Revelation 12, first couple verses. Two-thirds of the Jewish people will be wiped out. Now, folks, there's 14.5 million Jewish people today. You take out two-thirds of that, that's more than six million Jewish people will die during the tribulation period if the numbers stay the same. The worst holocaust is yet to happen. But the good news is for that other one-third, it tells us that one-third will be tried by the fire. Zechariah 13, verse 8 and 9, and they'll survive. 
Romans chapter 9 through 11 tells us about a Jewish remnant that will be saved, and all the Jewish remnant will come to Christ. Zechariah backs it up. Matthew backs it up. That one-third of the Jewish people that will be protected, and most of us, I can't go into the, the theological background on this right now, most conservative scholars believe that the Jewish people will be hidden in Petra. That's why I'm going to take in the group to Jordan. We'll cross the border, go in the Jordan, we'll go to Petra. It's an old sandstone Nabataean place that is marvelous. And you say, well, if everybody knows where the Jewish people are going to be hidden, that doesn't seem like they're going to be able to be protected. Well, there's other reasons theologically to prove that that's probably the spot. And that's a whole other message I don't have time to give right now. But folks, no matter where God is going to take the several million Jewish people and hide them, do you think he can hide them? By the way, here's, here's, here's something to just mull over. Anybody ever hear the tree of life in Genesis? Where is it? What did God say he was going to do with it? He put a couple of angels around and said, keep people away from it. I don't know where the tree of life is and neither do you. We got good technology today. I can't find it, and I don't think I ever will until it's time to really eat from it after uh, we're taken out of here. If God can hide the tree of life, if God can uh, hide other things, you think he can hide the Jewish people and protect them? You think he can do that? Can we agree that he can? I think so. I know so. So what is God saying? The remnant will be looking up. They will see Jesus coming back. All right, so let's get moving. And in verse 31, and he, here's what's going to happen when Jesus returns. Again, not the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church happened seven years early when we were taken out of here. Seven-year tribulation has now taken place. Jesus Christ comes down, and here's what he's going to do. Despite the fact that the greatest proportion of people will die during that seven-year tribulation, there will still be individuals that somehow will manage to survive. So here's the first thing God is going to do. And he, Jesus, will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So we're talking about he's going to go out, gather all those who are believers, and bring them together to Jerusalem. Now let's move on. Because now we're going to get into the actual illustrations we were talking about. By the way, how are people going to come to Christ during the tribulation period? Take your Bibles, go in Matthew 24, and go back up to verse 14. And what does Matthew 24, 14 say? Jesus is talking about what will be taking place during the seven-year tribulation period. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. In other words, the end of the age when Jesus Christ comes back at his second advent. You say, wait a minute. I've been told and I've heard missionaries come to my church and they use this verse. And they use this as a proof text to prove that nothing can happen until we get the gospel out to all nations. Folks, that's not true. That's improper exegesis. What is this talking about? This is talking specifically about what will be taking place during the tribulation. We say, wait a minute, if the church has been raptured, who's going to do all the preaching? How about Revelation chapter 7 
and 14, the 144,000 young male virgin Jewish witnesses who will go out and preach the gospel. The Bible says many, many, many folks will be saved. How about Revelation chapter 11 where it talks about the two witnesses who will go out and will preach the gospel. And folks, folks will be saved. Many, 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 many folks will be saved during the tribulation period. The gospel will get, as God says, it's going to get to the entire world. How's he going to do that? I wish I knew his plan, because if we all had it, we could do it now. But it's, it's going to be amazing. And quite frankly, it'll be supernatural a great deal of the ways that it will happen. But the gospel is going to get to every nation, every person. Nobody will be able with excuse. And that's how it's going to happen. So, now we get to the illustrations. Let's go to uh, verse 32. All right. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, uh uh-oh, this generation will by no means pass away to all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. What is Jesus saying to his disciples here? He's saying, listen guys, you know about trees, you know about agriculture. I've just explained to you in Matthew chapter, basically chapter 24, verses 4 through the verse we're at right now, about things that will be happening just prior to my coming, my coming back to set up my kingdom. And he says, as surely as these things that I've shown you, if you are seeing these things come to pass, my second coming is near. Very near. Now folks, here's where it gets a little hairy, so to speak. A little bit of a predicament. So we need to explain this. And by the way, a good preacher isn't going to skip over the hard verses. Amen? Okay, I guess I didn't skip it. Anyway, or I'm not a good preacher. I'm not sure which it is. Anyway, we'll take it. (laughs) Verse 34. Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, disciples, this generation... Mm. will by no means pass away till all these things take place. He's talking to the disciples, right? They're sitting there, he's talking to them. And now he's saying this generation is going to pass away till all these things take place. I'm going to throw out for those that are here that have maybe a little bit more theological background, Bible background, I'm going to throw out a couple of things. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sorry, I'll try and make it simple. There's a group called the Preterists. Anybody heard of that? Okay, a few have. Here's what the preterists teach. And by the way, it's, well, I won't go into that, but uh, Tommy Ice, who's the head of the Pre-Trib Research Center, and I wrote a, uh, he basically wrote part of it. I wrote a book on this subject refuting these things that we're going to go through right now. He's saying this generation won't pass through all these things. Wait a minute. What won't pass? What won't happen until what generation? What Jesus is telling the individuals is that the generation that sees all the signs that he talked about in verses 4 through uh, basically 34, when all these things are taking place, the generation that sees those signs, when they see the signs in Revelation 6 through 19 verse 10, when they see the signs that are talking about by Zechariah and Isaiah and Jeremiah, when they see those signs... That generation that sees those signs is the generation 
that will see Jesus Christ return. The group known as the Preterists, all due respect to them, they're, they're usually preach the gospel. In fact, I, most, if not all, Preterists teach the gospel. That They have a little bit of a skew on this. The Preterists teach, and again, I don't like teaching stuff that isn't true, but I'm just going to throw it out there. The Preterists teach that virtually all prophecy that we've been going through and will go through was all fulfilled in A.D. 70 when the, first, when the second temple was destroyed. They believe that the Romans coming were the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I'm like, I mean, I don't want to get satirical, but it's like, seriously, that just doesn't add up. Bottom line is, we're not going to go through it. But that's because it says, this generation. Therefore, the generation had to have been in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. Folks, that definitely is not true. Okay? And... You study it out. But that's what he's talking about. The generation that sees the signs. This is the good interpretation. The generation that sees the signs that he's talking about will be the one that will literally see Jesus return. All right, so how do we know what is going to happen is true? Well, here's the authority. My words will by no means pass away. Folks, if God said it, is it good? Absolutely. It's solid. It's true. It will not change. So when Jesus says he's coming back, he's going to set up his third, actually this will be the fourth temple. The third temple will be destroyed. Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48 talks about the fourth temple, gives a massive dimensions of it, goes through all the different things that will be taking place. That's a whole other series in itself. Jesus said he's coming back to set up his kingdom after those signs are inaugurated, then he will come. Now, and I don't know if we're going to get through the entire text today, but uh, let's go to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36. Another pair or another uh, basically illustration that is way often misinterpreted and misused. So let's go to verse 36. So, Jesus is talking again, and he's going to give them another illustration of being on guard for the second coming. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, here's the illustration. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And here's what happens, and unfortunately, uh, some of our friends that preach the gospel, preach the, preach the Bible. Well, obviously, this is talking about the rapture of the church-age saints. And friends, it is, we're going to call that a suspect interpretation, okay? Because what he's talking about is the second coming again, not the rapture. The rapture wasn't even a known concept at this time. So verse 39, or verse 38. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, not the rapture, it's taken in judgment, and the other left. Two, men, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken in judgment. I'm adding in judgment. And the other left. Watch therefore to people that are alive during the tribulation period. For you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Hmm. All right. So let's see if we can dissect this a bit. 
All right, so first of all, we find out what the day, nobody knows. We don't know the exact time, don't know the exact hour, but Jesus Christ will be coming back. So what is Jesus telling the, the, uh, the people to do? What will the tribulation people be instructed to do, if you will? Watch, be on guard, look. And then he kind of describes, not kind of, he does describe the days. Folks, do you realize, and again, if you've read Revelation chapter 6 to 19, the debauchery and the horrible, absolute blasphemy against God that will be taking place during this time. It's unprecedented. But God says, you remember how it was in the days of Noah? Now, I wasn't there, so I can't really remember it, but I can certainly tell it from Scripture how it was. And he's saying, the days of Noah, people were mocking Noah. What are you doing building that silly ark? What are you doing up? Folks, it hadn't rained yet. They've never had a flood. They had no idea what was coming. Noah knew. And they mocked him. What are you doing? What are you building? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Who cares about God? Who cares about anything? That's what he's saying was going on. Total complacency on spiritual issues. And what God is saying during the tribulation period, that's exactly what's going to be taking place again, just like in the days of Noah. People will be marrying, giving in marriage, having fun, eat, drink, and be merry. And I, and I kind of find a little bit of a, a, an antithesis in that because it's going to be one of the most horrible times on earth at that time as well. Horrible things will be taking place. But as those days of the Noah, so will the coming of Jesus Christ be. So what is he saying? All these things were going on. But then the flood came. And all of a sudden, when the water started coming up, how many people were saved out of that flood? Eight. Millions of people probably on the earth, and eight people are saved. Two of every clean, or seven of every clean animal, and two of every unclean. Most people never figure out the seven part. There were seven clean, two unclean of every animal that went on that ark. And God preserved them. And all of a sudden, the floodwaters come up, and they didn't get it until too late. They all perished. God only saved those in that ark. And Jesus Christ is telling to his disciples who then record it in Scripture and have it down here for those that will be alive after the rapture of the church. And I, you know, you pray that they'll read this. The, the 144,000 will be up there. The two witnesses will be out there. Others will be sharing the gospel. And this will get known. And he's saying, just like the, church, just like the people were complacent in the Old Testament, they didn't realize until it was too late what was coming. What's the rest of the illustration? Well, let's go to our time chart. Creation, according to Genesis 5 and 11, if you follow the genealogies, takes you back to approximately 4004 B.C. Sorry, evolutionists, God's word holds true. By the way, how many of you remember the most, the biggest proof text in the Bible for a six-day literal creation? Is it in Genesis? Just say no. <laughs> Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. In six days God created the heavens and the earth and all that therein is. Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. Destroys the gap theory, folks. 
Folks that go to Genesis to try and prove how old the earth is from Genesis chapter 1 and uh, theistic evolution and all the rest of it, bad place to go. Go to Exodus chapter 20 verse 11. Then go back to Genesis and start going through it. Clears up the, clears up the issue. In 2348 B.C., the worldwide Noahic flood took place, wiping out all but eight people and a bunch of animals. In 33 A.D., Using that number, Jesus Christ came. We're in the current church age. We don't know when it's going to end. We just know the rapture will stop it. Seven-year tribulation. And the Olivet Discourse tells us at the end of that seven-year tribulation, the days will be just like they were in Noah's time. That's a wake-up call. We're talking about spiritual judgment. Two men will be in the field. Just like the flood, judgment will come. Again, if we went through the 21 judgments in Revelation, which we definitely don't have time to do tonight, that's multiple week series, people are going to be dying by the tens of thousands, by the millions. Do you remember, and I, and I, like, I, I like to beat a few things because if you remember a couple of these things, they're really helpful. Do you remember that in two judgments in Revelation, 50% of the world's population is going to die? Revelation chapter 6, verse 8 and 9. One-fourth of the world's population is going to be wiped out. Go to the trumpet judgments. Revelation chapter 9, and it talks about one-third of all people being wiped out. Folks, 50% will be wiped out in those two judgments. If you still have your Bible to Matthew 24, look at verse 14. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. In other words, if it did, wasn't contained to that seven-year period, not a single soul would survive. Folks, there's 7.3 billion people on the earth today. Take away just those two judgments, kills 3.7 billion people. That's not to count the other 19 judgments. What a bloodbath. Judgment will be prevalent. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Folks, it's going to be a horrific time when Jesus Christ returns. Remember remember what's happening. We'll have to close with this. We won't get to the next two tonight. Why is all this going on? Why is there this seven-year horrible tribulation with these catastrophic judgments that are happening? Who's coming back? You can say it. Who's coming back? He's coming back. Now, he's first, he's going to come back for me and you if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. If you're here tonight and you've realized you're a sinner, you realize because you sin, you don't deserve to go to heaven, you realize there's a need to trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and you've done that. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If you've realized that you can't earn your way to heaven and you've trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior... He's coming for you at the rapture. That's a great, great, wonderful thing. We're looking forward to that. I'm, you know, the sooner the better. Then, after me and you are gone, that's trusted Christ, seven years of horrible tribulation. Why? 
to prepare for the second coming of Jesus Christ when he will come down, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, land on the Mount of Olives, split the Mount of Olives in two. He will go out to the Mount, or go out to Armageddon. Revelation chapter 19, Revelation 16, 16, last verse in Revelation 14, and he will wipe out all of his enemies. Jesus will then come. He'll have his angels, as we just read a little bit ago, will gather all the elect from around the world and bring them to Jerusalem. When Jesus Christ then, after the battle of Armageddon, and and it will be, I don't know that we'll get to it next week, in Matthew chapter 25, he talks about the judgment of the Jews and the Gentiles that survived the tribulation and who will enter into the kingdom with normal bodies, physical bodies. Who did I say is going to take the throne? Jesus Christ will finally take his throne. Lord, when are you coming back? What is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus in verses 14 through what we've looked at tonight in chapter 24 told them, this is going to happen before I return. Be ready. I'm coming. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is going to descend. He's going to come into Jerusalem after the battle of Armageddon. Zechariah chapter 6 verse 12 and 13 tells us that Jesus will build the fourth temple. He will then rule and reign from the fourth temple. Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 13. The King of kings and the Lord of lords will not tolerate sin in his kingdom. Therefore, when those 3.7 billion people and all the rest, and probably a much, much, much greater number than that 50%, will be killed, will be wiped out. Why? Because when you read Revelation, what does it keep telling you? They went through the judgments and they did not repent. They scorned the Savior. They refused to accept that this was God calling them to be ready for his coming. And Jesus told us, he said, listen folks, the generation that sees these things that I've just talked about happen, you better be ready because I'm coming. Folks, do you realize how rough that is? It's tough. So what does that mean to me and you as we shut down the night? Here's what it means. If you believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible, the next major event on God's prophetic calendar is me and you going up to heaven. Rapture of the church. That's good. But wait a second. What has to happen for the rapture to take place? You know what has to happen yet? Nothing. You say, what sign has to take place? No sign. We are not looking for signs. We are listening for the sound. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with what? A shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God. We're listening for sounds. We're not looking for signs. Listen. Could happen tonight. But then what? Are me and you in a good place? Are we in a good place if that happens? Uh, come on, folks. Yes. Thank you. Had <laughs> a boy. Girls. We're in a good place. What about your next door neighbor? What about your relatives? What about those that you love and care about that you know? You know. I know people that have not trusted Christ. Where are they going to be? 
right here. Not necessarily in this church, but they're going to be right here on this earth. So what does that mean? It means me and you got some work to do, doesn't it? It means me and you got some work to do to go out and tell folks the greatest news ever given to mankind, that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, which he did. That's the good news. That's what we've accepted. Folks, you wouldn't be on a Sunday night for in all probability if you didn't believe that. We're going to close with this. You may be here tonight, however, and maybe you're one of those individuals. You're like, wow, this is, this is unbelievable. Well, it's actually very believable. But it's like all this stuff's going to happen. Yeah, it's really going to happen. 1,000 prophecies in the Bible, 500 have come true exactly as stated. God hasn't missed a beat for 500 of those 1,000 prophecies. Does that mean the 500 that are yet to come true will come true exactly as stated? Yeah, it does. God's reliable. It's going to happen. Have you ever trusted Jesus as your Savior? Now, I know most of you in this room have. But maybe there's one, maybe a young person, maybe a teenager. could be a senior citizen. And you're like, man, I've heard this and heard this and heard this. But have you ever trusted Christ? Have you ever received the free gift? It's a free gift. You cannot buy it. You cannot earn it. It's a free gift. You have to accept that free gift. Have you ever accepted it? Once again, it's just as simple. Do we all know that we're sinners? We've all done wrong. Can we agree on that? I think so. Can we agree that, unfortunately, because if we got what we deserved, that every single one of us were burned in an awful place called hell? Very politically incorrect. Sorry for saying it, but I'm not sorry. Because, unfortunately, those without Jesus, that's exactly where they'll go. It's a horrible thought. The lake of fire forever and ever, eternity. But Jesus loved you so much, he came down from heaven. You remember when he touched you, folks? Do you remember a time when Jesus Christ touched you and received him as your personal Savior? If you remember it... That's good. If you can't remember a time when you've trusted Jesus, maybe it's time to do it tonight. Get your heart right with God tonight. You say, how do I do that again? Do you believe that Jesus is God's son? You say, yes, I do. Do you believe Jesus died on a cross for your sins? You say, yes, I do. Do you believe that he'll save you? If you ask him, is God a liar? Nope. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish or go to hell but have everlasting life. Every head bow, please. Father, thank you for this time we've had tonight. Lord, thank you for the precious Word of God. Thank you for telling us about things that are to come. It's motivational. It's helpful for us to be encouraged to go out and tell others the greatest news ever given, which is the Gospel. Father, thank you for sharing these wonderful prophetic truths with us. Christian, do we have some work to do? You bet you we do. Until this church is so packed out, we have to go to multiple services. We got work to do. Got lots of work to do. So folks, I pray, would you ask the Lord what he'll have you to do this week? Would you ask God to put somebody in your mind that you need to go to this week and share the gospel with? Maybe if you're uh, having a problem, the, the, the opportunity isn't right, could you invite somebody to church? That's pretty simple. Invite them to come. Maybe invite them to our our Easter time where we'll really center on Jesus Christ and His resurrection. Can you do that? I know you can. Ask God who that person or persons are right now. Put them in your mind and start to pray for them this week. And maybe you'll get that opportunity. If you're here this evening, you've never trusted Christ, let me just ask this last question. If you're here tonight, every head's bowed, every eye closed, you'd say, Brother Rich... I'm one of those 
people. I'm not sure if I died, I'd go to heaven tonight, but I'd sure like to know. Nobody's looking around. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out, but I would like to pray for you. Say, Brother Rich, I'm not sure if I die tonight. I'm still not sure, but I'd sure like to know that. Would you pray for me? I promise I'll do nothing more than pray for you tonight. Would you just slip your hand up? Say, Brother Rich, would you pray for me? I'm not sure if I died. I'd go to heaven. Anyone tonight? Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. Father, I pray that you'd watch over us this week, that you'd keep us protected, that you'd help us to be a good witness. And Lord, help us to keep studying the Word and bring us back next week. And we'll give you the praise, the honor, and glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you.